I remember being in jail, being so disassociated that I could do like 200 push-ups a day on a broken wrist. I can't do that now. But that's because I was trained to be that way from the trials of my life. Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we discover how to get out of our own way, unleash the full capability of our mind, become the hero of our story, and a hero for other people. From an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved to manage threatening encounters. I do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. We have to do it in a way that doesn't just assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. When you suffer, and then you come out of it on the other side, you stand a little taller, your voice doesn't shake anymore, your eyes are always Sorry to depress you guys. Self-doubt is par for the course. It's just how you choose to deal with them, react to them, or not react to them. Uh, A little tough love goes a long way, and high expectation also goes a long way. The more you expect of someone, the more they'll do. I have to keep moving forward. No good comes from going back. I don't need red tape. I'm not into rules. I'm not into regulation. I'm just going to do this. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Jesse Thistle, a Mede Cree from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Jesse is an assistant professor in Mede's study at York University in Toronto. Honestly, I wanted to name this episode the toughest man you've never met. Because when you see this intelligent, well-spoken, empathetic, caring, loving person today, it is difficult to imagine the past that he had. Before Jesse landed at York University and became one of Canada's most decorated PhD students, he was dealing with mental illness, homelessness, addicted to crack cocaine, paid regular visits to correctional facilities across Ontario, couldn't read or write, and couldn't walk because of a staph infection. He says he was the limping homeless person on the side of the road begging for change. Jesse's story and his incredible work makes the passed on intergenerational trauma so tangible and digestible. In hearing his story, you begin to understand the pain, the sadness, and the emptiness that dominated his nurturing. It was little tiny experiences of love through his youth into his adolescence that was able to keep a tiny spark inside him alive. After an unsuccessful robbery in 2006, or what a judge claimed was the worst criminal he'd ever seen, Thistle turned himself into police and entered a drug rehabilitation program. In 2012, he entered the undergraduate history program at York University. So yes, lots of questions, lots to unpack, and that is what we will cover in this episode. Jesse's book, From the Ashes, is as much educational as it is empowering. This is the first book that has made me stop reading in awe of what I just read. It's so difficult to fathom where Jesse is today. It truly is a life-changing book and may change your life differently than it would change your neighbors. Absolutely outstanding. But before we hop into this episode, as always, we have to talk about and give a shout out to our unbelievable friends at True Local, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L, True Local. If you want high-quality meat individually packaged, easily ordered online, no hidden fees, no hidden costs, no cancellation fees, cancellation costs, what you see is what you get, and that is high-quality, locally-sourced meats, also seafood, and new products are coming all the time. Another added bonus is they're working on also delivering frozen fruits, and their packaging is recyclable. So if you want to give them a try... 
Use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. Before we hop into this episode, if you want to order Jesse's book, especially after hearing this outstanding episode, the link to do so is in the description. So click that link to order Jesse's book, From the Ashes. All right, let's get to it. I know I'm asking this question on behalf of a lot of people. What is the politically correct term for Indigenous or First Nations Canadians? Well, I think whatever nation they belong to is the correct term, right? So just ask them, what where, what are your people? They'll say like Anishinaabe, uh, Haudenosaunee, Métis, or Machif, or Dene, uh, Gitsin. That's the correct term. Uh, indigenous come is uh, comes much later, and it's not uh, there. It's not actually a, an indigenous word, uh, right? That comes from Western understandings of uh, indigeneity, and so yeah, just ask the people, and they'll probably tell you. I'm, you know, and they're proud to tell you too, and that you right. took the time to care, right? <clears throat> exactly exactly well, i appreciate that okay thinking back for you I, i'm not even sure where to jump into this your book was so powerful because it seems like you remembered so much which i think goes into the whole childhood trauma a portion of of your book um and i would say when you look back and and for me personally i've read the book but for listeners what it, was the very first issue uh, of your development, if you look back when you were a young boy, what was the first experience where you were already missing some sort of love or something like that? What was that very first memory where things weren't right? Uh, being taken away from the road allowance where my Cookham and Musham lived in northern Saskatchewan. So they lived on the sides of the roads because our family stood up against Canada and we were dispossessed totally because we went to war in the late 1800s and they basically took our lands and we had nowhere to be. And so that's where my grandparents uh, lived their lives on the sides of the roads and the ditches. And so I remember being there and it was a beautiful, beautiful memory of that time. But I remember that abruptly ending when I was like three and a half. Right. And so that's the first thing that I remember, you know, just that, that was where it kind of went south and I ended up with my dad and he had addiction issues and I didn't have my mom around. And yeah, I was quite young when all that happened. So they left and when they were gone, their land was taken. And when they came back, there was, there was nowhere to go. Yeah. There was nowhere to go for my people. And we, the Métis people, the Michif, uh, the people that uh, French Catholic Métis uh, who were bison hunters mainly, uh, that's what they became. They became world allowance people after they were dispossessed of their lands uh, through a process called scrip. And that was a way that the Canadian government extinguished Métis title to land on an individual basis, which is different with how they treated with First Nations. They dealt with them collectively. So in a lot of ways, my people had a, a much rougher time than First Nations people did because we didn't have any Indian department to take care of us, right? We didn't have access to health or education. We were, we're known as the forgotten people in Canadian history because nobody knows our story. They know about Real uh, and the resistances, but they don't know what happened to the Métis in the 20th century. And that's basically where my book picks up and talks about the impacts of intergenerational trauma. Uh, would it be right 
for me as, as someone that is learning so much from you uh, to suggest that in many instances of, of similar stories to yours, there's a super powerful story and, and a lot of powerful meaning within the Mete Cree people, but the intergenerational trauma takes that away from you in your young years when you could leverage so much from those, the stories and the beliefs that your people have. Well, I would say intergenerational poverty is what really uh, unfettered my people uh, and perpetuated the intergenerational trauma. And so, yeah, it, it destroyed ultimately our kinship networks and our connection to land and language and culture. And that happened for me when I was three and a half, you know, through almost four years old. And so I grew up my life without that. And I'm one of thousands and thousands of Michif people across the country that this has happened to. And that's actually who I wrote the book for, uh, for other people that hopefully can see that they have similar stories of cultural ambivalence and not knowing who they are and dislocation the same way that I do. What age were you at when you were able to start piecing things together of this intergenerational trauma and, and the reasoning for, you know, where, where was that? Did you ever, you know, what age you were at when that you understood that resentment and where it came from? Uh, years, years later, uh, maybe, I don't know, in my teen years, you know, because when you're living through trauma or traumatic events, you're just trying to survive and adapt. You don't have time to th think and analyze and be resentful. You're just thinking about, am I going to survive this? And how can I make it to the next day? And so that started for me when I was three and a half, right? And then I went through CAS and that was traumatic. And, you know, I didn't have my mom and my dad. Then I went up with my grandparents and they were disciplinarians and that was a whole ordeal in itself. And so it wasn't until I started to become my own person, really, in my teenage years that I started to look back and say, you know what? You know, I'm angry at my mom and my dad for not being around. And then I started to kind of internalize uh, my resentments and that started to drive my addictions because I had what's called adverse childhood experiences. And I related that to my indigeneity. And uh, yeah, it really took root in my, my teenage years. Yeah, it was interesting to read that in the book that in a way you, you did miss out on those great values that come from your people and their beliefs because of the resentment that came from the lack of opportunity and, and the rough upbringing that you did have. Like I, I, I'd be curious if, if you even can remember what it was like when, when you talked about in your book, noticing the blue on your mother's cheeks as a young boy, can you even begin to explain to people what that was like at that, at that young age when you don't really know much about the world? No, no. I just start to see the, the way that my dad treated my mom and I just knew I didn't like it and it made me really uncomfortable, you know, and I, but violence early on in my life became normalized, you know. It was something that was just there. And I thought that was normal because I didn't know any different, you know. And so, <clears throat> yeah, it's haunting now because I remember those things, you know. And those, instead of learning to love and trust like other kids are in their parents at that age, I'm learning about violence and survival and trauma 
And that was just ingrained in me so early on. Like I learned to steal and lie and all that stuff when I was very, very young as a survival strategy, you know, and uh, I carry those lessons with me still today. Right. I think that's so powerful that people love to make assumptions about stealing and, and why people act a certain way. And I mean, it's so powerful when I've listened to a lot of your talks, when you, when you talk about being the other time in your life, the individual on the side of the road, stealing and, and needing money and limping too, because of an injury yet no one takes that time. How we began this conversation to ask, you know, where did you come from? Who are your people? What led you to this moment? Um, which was so extremely powerful in your book. I, I thought it was outstanding. I mean, it was even interesting that in your book, when you were, there was a part where you stole bird eggs from a neighbor's bird's nest, her friend's bird's nest, and even chocolate from the variety store. And it seemed like those, that was the early stages of, of the stealing and the poor actions, I guess, via the resentment that you had. Well, it was a way for me to, like what if you really look at like the psychology of the way I was when I was a kid, like people had taken my, my power and my innocence very young. Right. And so through negative means, I learned that I could control my world and get what I wanted through stealing and lying. Right. I learned that very, very young. And there's a power in that. It's not a good power. It's a dark power. But I'm still, I'm still asserting my own agency, right? And that, you know, try to steal those eggs because I wanted a family. You know, how sad is that, right? And uh, stealing chocolate bars and then lying to my grandmother and then manipulating her in a lie. Like I learned a lie there uh, and I just continued that. And so in many ways, that was like, my survival strategy and i've heard like back in like ancient greece the spartans used to take kids away from their mother and father and they'd force them to steal and lie for their food because that was training to make them into hardened soldiers when they're older because they would have to do that in the field and so that hardness was happening with me i was learning to be like a spartan warrior through my crucible of my early life. And that I think later in life saved me because I knew what it was to survive and scrounge and do whatever it took to survive where people that I was on the streets with, they just died because they didn't have those skills. In your book, you, you said that you, when there was a portion where your grandmother um, said she was going to take you to children's aid and she said, from your your words that you had arrived broken to her home after everything that you dealt with and re and experienced with your your parents um, in that moment did you start to understand how unfair the situation was and that you were broken in a way i don't know i don't know i i yeah i guess i always knew there was something missing there's something broken in me i never and I still really don't have the capacity to trust other people. Uh, you learn that from your mom and your dad, right? Mm -hmm. And then it, it bleeds out into your world. Uh, but I just didn't have that. And so, um, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was unfair. It was just who I was. I was hardened into that very, very young. And 
I don't know. I don't know. I, well, it's a hard question to answer. Yeah, yeah. What was it like having love from someone that I guess wasn't completely, what wasn't sober all the time? Was it, what was, I, I find that, did you think, was that normal for you? Was there, did you know it was wrong and look past that? I find that interesting in your grandmother because she also, from your book, was the first one to show you love, or maybe at times even the only person to show you love, um, yet maybe wasn't leading that ideal life you could look up to. What was what was that experience like? I love her. Yeah, I love her. I love the smell of her cigarettes and her, you know, getting drunk on Christmas and, you know, all the good stuff that comes with family, you know? Yeah, my family's a little broken, but they can love me through those cracks, you know, and, and the light gets in still. They can see who they are. And they do it on, she did it unconditionally, you know. I know she had it when she was going to kick us out because we kept eating all the food, but she's human too, you know, and she, you know, she lost her son like my dad went missing in 1982, presumed presume murdered. So, of course, she's going to act in a, a way that she's damaged from what happened. And so, yeah, I just, I love her despite, despite her flaws, and maybe even because of them. I can't help but smile as you say that because it's, that makes so much sense. Uh, and, and I think now looking back, you can also understand, and I don't even like calling it a flaw now because she also probably had a similar experience to you. And that's where this trans generational trauma kind of comes from, that it goes from generation to generation. For sure. She had it worse. She, my grandmother had it worse. She was from Temiskaming uh, in Northern Ontario and her father was born on a, uh, what's called the Nedlac Reserve. And she, her father had serious alcohol issues and was quite abusive. He went to residential schools and was destroyed by what happened in there. And so she lived through that and she faced such extreme poverty when she was young that she got scarlet fever which gave her a hole in her heart that she lived with for the, her whole life. You know, she wasn't even supposed to survive scarlet fever. And then she goes on to have a child and with my grandfather and that's my dad and they lose him. And then they they have to raise three kids. I can't even imagine how broken that would have been for her, you know, how hard her life would have been, but she smiled and she tried to love us, you know, even while she was sending us to the store to get DeMaurier cigarettes. So, Again, I can't but wipe this smile off my face. There was a chapter, Dynamite, and this was where things really were, were I would say, at the sounds like at the peak of, of where change was about to happen or needed to happen. And you, you said that you had no fear of death. You got to that point and you, you told a story and I don't, it might even be better if you could briefly touch on it because I don't, I wouldn't do it justice, but you were ready to risk your life to get drugs and i wonder yeah. if you could quickly take people through that story and and again to me was almost a catalyst for change like things needed to change at that point yeah it was a <clears throat> point in my life where my leg was infected with a staphylococci infection was really bad i had a in a surgery a failed surgery on my uh heel on my calcaneus and it got really infected and uh I was deeply, deeply into my addiction and I was, 
disassociative. That's what they would say in psychological terms. And it was also, uh, I forgot, in psychosis. And so I had this idea to take this stick of dynamite to my dealer's house in my coat pocket and, uh, you know, threaten to blow the place up. And I didn't have any fear of death. Other people, other people that were gang members and, you know, dealers and whatever, they were afraid of me because I was a loose cannon because I literally would, you know, I didn't care. I really didn't care. And the most dangerous thing in the world is someone that just doesn't care. And no matter how hard you hurt them, they just don't care. And I didn't even feel pain then. And it was so far gone and paranoid because I was involved in a murder case and I thought people were always chasing me that I started to visualize these like Ewok creatures coming at me. Every time I'd smoke crack, I think they're hiding in trees, hiding under cars, hiding everywhere, just like trying to get me. And I would start to see like codes and license plates and stuff and say, oh, that's the, like the FBI or the KGB or like whoever they're following me. There's, and I would hear helicopters and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I took that dynamite and I went in and I tried to intimidate uh, the, uh, my dealer and I actually held it up and I was like, I'm going to light this. I swear to God, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to blow the place up. And they were afraid, but then like obviously – logic he probably was thinking a lot clearer than i was noticed that it was a road flare and he pulled it out of my hand and he thought i was actually joking which probably saved my life because there was armed gunmen there and they would have shot me if they thought i was a real threat and so that just goes to show you like i was that desperate to get dope i was that far gone but i was also trying to commit suicide i was also hoping that if i didn't get the drugs that they would kill me because it was just so miserable, right? And that was what I did. And in the end, he just gave me 20, uh, 20 stone because he probably felt sorry for me. And I did probably scare him and he didn't want to show that, right? And so that's what the story is, is about like the psychosis of lifelong trauma and what it leads to. The total dissociative, um, yeah, just psychopathic behavior almost you know and so yeah i'm not proud of that story but i had to put it in there to contextualize the chaos that was my life right totally that's and that's how i read it i mean it was it was almost like the peak of where things could get to and and you just stated it as a point where you are doing something that hey if this ends things you were coming you were at terms with that and it's it yeah, yeah. Make- Even before I went there, I was I came to terms. I was dead in a lot of ways. I had died many, a thousand times on the streets, you know, a thousand broken hearts. And so what's a physical death compared to dying inside all those times? And I just accepted that. I became a real outlaw then, a real person that didn't care. You know, I just didn't care. I literally climb up the side of uh, apartment buildings, 17 floors on the outside. And I did that kind of stuff. I was just like that. Like It makes me, as I, again, as I said, I'm learning so much in the area of personality and development right now in my degree. And one thing that that makes me think of is Carl Jung talking about meaning. And you would just said, you know, you died a thousand times. Then what is a, a physical death? And I wondered at that point in your life, what, what was their meaning? 
how you, did you have meaning in a certain way in your life? What did that look like? There was some meaning still left in me then. The, the, the most danger I was in was when I was in Ottawa. Uh, right at the end of my addictions, I had relapsed. And like, I, I couldn't even bother to learn other people's names. And the streets had no names. I didn't care. They were just like smears. People's faces were smears. I knew I was in real trouble then. I knew like life has no meaning, you know. There's a grand facade of, of meaning that give, like we imprint that on all the places and people that we know. And that was just stripped away completely. And it was just like everything was this mass of gray. And I was in that gray. I was just another smear. My life didn't matter. And I remember smelling like uh, bread and like it pulled me back because it reminded me of my grandmother and Christmas when I was a boy. So I still had that ember of like humanity in me, you know, but yeah, that, that was the most dangerous, the farthest gone I ever was um, when I lost all meaning in life. And not to go down uh, on a tangent, but I guess what is your belief when it comes to other people dealing with, with something, no matter how intense the mental or behavioral issue may be, do you believe that that spark remains in everyone, no matter how many layers of issues there are on top of them? I've seen it go out in other people, you know, people like, especially at the Shepherds of Good Hope in Ottawa, that shelter just does something. They take the worst, the worst people, and it goes out in in their eyes, and you can see them. At their, it's almost like they have tombstones in their eyes. You know, they're just not there. I can see. I look at old photos, and I see that in myself too. Like there were moments where it went out, and so. But I think it can be rekindled. You know, I think we all have the ability uh, to carry that little chamber of uh, that spark within us of meaning, and that grows into a uh, can grow into a forest fire, a lovely forest fire. If you know we 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 we, ta- we take care of it and we we give it love and we try to give it meaning, give the world meaning back. You know, instead of trying to hurt the world, try to help the world, and that that it grows, right? It grows. Right. The, for me, uh, you you sit here so calm, telling these these stories and reflecting back, and I'm so appreciative of that. In a lot of the stories, it sounds like there's anger due to for the list of reasons we've discussed was there ever points where there was sadness and did you allow yourself to feel that or did anger try and cover up that sadness uh many years anger was my only emotion real anger real anger like it burnt white hot in me and like it almost destroyed me it almost destroyed me and so you're sensing that I didn't put that in the book because I'm writing, I wrote it from like a place of distance looking back. But if I colored the pages with the actual anger, it would have alienated the reader completely because like, that's just a different, I was just a, a different creature. I, I don't even think I was human in a lot of ways. That was just my driving emotion, but really it was masking my sadness. That was just like my way to deal with like, immense loss over my life over and over and over and over again just 
like dying, having my heart broken, having my body broken, having everything taken from me. And like, yeah, you get to the point where you you start lashing out, right? You start lashing out, and that's where I was. I was a violent man, you know, and I, I admit that. I'm not proud of that. Uh, but it's who I was, and it, let, it consumed me for many years, many, many years. I think the, the moment I saw that spark and I saw your emotions resonate or materialize as sadness in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was so powerful reading the part about where your mom wrote to you, I believe, and you talked about emotions rolling down your cheeks. And I thought, first of all, that was a powerful way to say it. Uh, but that's a moment where I realized, okay, there, the Jesse that he wants to be is still in there. Or, or what did that moment do for you? Was that a pivotal moment in your life? Yeah, I hadn't talked to her for many, many, many years. And I'd been drifting around homeless and from place to place. And when she, when I heard her voice, I can still remember the way it sounded. It was like a warble. She's like, ah, cause she was old and like that cathedral of hate in me. It just, it collapsed. The pillars collapsed. And like out of that, like levy broke of emotions down my cheeks. And it was almost like a, I don't know, a cleansing or, a renewal and it came through forgiveness it was like an instant forgiveness when you've hated someone and yourself for so long and you've had nothing but desolate like desert around you when you get that you're another chance at love like that one i had with my mom i it just i don't know it drove out the hate you know it drove out all that and it just became a reborn or something i don't know that was one of the moments where I really changed. And uh, I can't even remember what we talked about, to tell you the truth. But I know how I feel. I can still, like, my heart aches when I think about that conversation. When was the moment where the change did occur? I, I know the judge said, before going into, moving into the rehab program, the judge said that you committed one of the what was it, crummiest crimes he'd ever seen, something along those lines. <laughs> I think that is such an important piece to add to this whole discussion. What was that, that process like? How did you, did you pre, was it, it was premeditated to get into the justice system, to get into rehab? How did that play out? Uh, no, that wasn't premeditated. I was just desperate and didn't know what else to do. But if you rewind before that chapter, there's the moment where I almost jumped off the building and right. that lady talked me down. Well, in that chapter, in that time period, I was incontinent. I couldn't even hold my, my bowels, right? My body was so broken that I couldn't control that. And I was close to death. And I, I really, really understood that I was going to die, you know? Um, and there's, there's a clarity in life that happens when you realize that you're going to die. It's something kicks in and you just want to live, you know, you just want to do your best after that. You just want a second chance at life. And so that was with me on the streets, you know, and there's actually a, a moment in that didn't make it into my book that I'll share here. Uh, that is actually the actual turning point of what happened. I was uh, in front of Rideau Center homeless, uh, had severe addiction to, uh, to like crack and alcohol. 
And I used to go around and bu- bum change from people all the time. And I bumped into the same guy like three times in one day. And I told him a different story each time I bumped into him. And he gave me money each time. But then he said, hey, man, I want to talk to you for real. He's like, who are you? Why are you here? And why are you limping? I see you limping on your one side and it's not good for your posture. And I can, I can tell because I'm like a foot doctor, uh, whatever they call it, podiatrist or uh, I want to buy you a pair of shoes, he says. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, you know, I'd really like to take those shoes, but I can't trust myself. Can't trust myself because I know that I'll just take those shoes and I'll sell them. And you're such a good person. I don't want to do that to you. Because if I do that, some part of my humanity will die. And it, once that goes, that spark that I was talking about, I'm, I, I'm done for. And so he's like, ah, don't worry about it. You can do whatever you want with the shoes. And I refused. And then eventually he agreed to take me out to breakfast. Uh, we went to the Oliphant. And uh, we had bacon and eggs, and he just talked to me like a regular person. And it was the first time in many, many, many months that anybody even took the time to talk to me that way. And I think that it, that was the line that I wasn't willing to cross. You know, I wasn't willing to betray the kindness of strangers. And, yeah, I don't know if that guy was half angel or what the hell he was, man, but that was the turning point that didn't make it into the book because i couldn't write it down because it was too difficult too difficult for me to to face that there was a you lacked i guess so much love at that point that that was a a small experience of of love given to you from someone from a stranger that that started to reignite that that ember a little bit more yeah yeah yeah, it was almost like I was Gollum and like, I don't know. And I, someone gave me a little drop of love and I started to like change and become a good person. I don't know, because that was really the turning point. And then afterwards, I, I was still in trouble with the law and I still broke, did the break and enter and whatever, got caught. But that was the, the turning point. I knew I was going to die. And this person, I wouldn't cross that line and they loved me. And so, yeah. Wow. And so how did you find yourself in front of this judge that wasn't afraid to comment on your quality of of, um, criminal activity, I guess you could say? I broke into a a falafel place and I I jumped the counter. I stuffed my pockets full of money. I pried open the till and then I ran to go my crack dealer down the street. And they literally followed the trail of money from the robbery to where I was smoking crack in front of the shepherds of good hope. They didn't even have to like, it was a, such a joke, right? Like, and so when they arrested me and put me inside and I got in front of the judge, the judge is like, this is a really sad attempt at a robbery. And, um, I was, that's, he, he, he knew that I just needed a chance. I, just, I didn't need to go to jail. I wasn't like a, crim, a career criminal or else I would have done a way better job. Right. <laughs> He, he was like, this guy's pitiful, let's help him. And that was the first time, really, that someone kind of legislated me or, or put me in, into rehab. That was my first real chance at, at, at going to rehab uh, through a sentence. And it worked for me. It worked for me. I know a lot of people are against court-ordered rehab, but it worked for me. So That's outstanding. And, and one of the 
quotes that I absolutely loved. And again, not to dive too much back into uh, Jungian theories, but to, you said that you could fight the darkness because you were the darkness at one point. And I absolutely love that whole concept. And your story speaks volumes to it, especially with how incredibly successful you have been today that we are given so many opportunities today. And I've said it many times on the podcast to run from the parts of us that we don't like. And the biggest one in the world is just your cell phone. Um, To realize that giving attention to those dark parts of you known as what Jung would call the the shadow that lurks beneath us, that are the the parts of us that we don't like, that we suppress, that we don't consider a part of our conscious identity. We, we tell ourselves, we're not that, we're not mean, we're not rude. Um, so in your terms, in your, in your subjective view, how did understanding how negative, angry uh, you could be, how did that benefit you in, in deciding to move forward? Well, it's as simple as when you know the vacuum of hate, like real hate. I'm talking like like it's something that consumes you so much. When you know that, there's no love. And when you, when you have no love or you've destroyed love, you know the value of it when it comes back to you, when you see it again. And so I, I have a real appreciation of love because I know hate and I've it's lived in me. I know the value of life because I've almost died multiple times and I've had a second chance. It's like you talk to any cancer survivor who survives stage four cancer and they'll tell you that. I know the value of going for a walk in the park or just walking down the stairs because that was taken from me. I, I almost lost my leg. And so that dark part of me that almost destroyed me and did destroy me many times over has now given me appreciation for the beauty, the love, the light in the world. And I can, through my giving and, and trying to love the world back, fight that darkness that's within me. And that's what that, that means. And in the darkness of others, I try to help and uh, people in the situation that I was in once. And so, uh, yeah, that's what that quote's about. So I didn't know it was tied to Jungian uh, philosophies or uh, psychology. So thank you. you. I just learned something. <laughs> Jeez, that, that is amazing. I, I, I was going to save this till the end when we were talking off, off mic or off recording. Uh, but similar, you and myself started off as putting not that much value on education. And now, you way more than me. You've obviously taken it to a whole nother level. I'm just doing my master's, uh, but just this obsession with learning now. And and for me, again, different levels, I think, but but making up for, for past time where I didn't put value on it and didn't want to learn. And and so I, I appreciate that coming from someone like yourself. I really do. Um, Thank you. Thank you. The So the really cool part is you actually, part of writing your book was part of your rehab. Is that true? Yeah. Yes, that's true. How do you know that? <laughs> You've been researching. I, I oh geez, and I've got. Don't worry, we're diving into one of your published articles soon as well. So don't worry, there's lots to come. Um, so yeah, so that was part of your your rehab. That's that's amazing. At at the time, could you walk through? Did you notice consciously how writing this book was making a difference? Was it it was moving the needle along in your rehab? 
Yeah. So my book is actually a collection of my AA four steps from rehab that I've done since 2009. I've continued to do that. I learned that first in rehab to write out my trauma, my shame, all the things that were driving my addiction, my hate, all that stuff, and make sense of it, right? Because when you're in addiction, none of it really makes sense. It's incomprehensible, and you have to order it and understand why. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you hurt that person? Why did you react that way? And so that only comes through doing your moral inventory and going back, hopefully, so that you can make amends with people. And so I'd always written my amends on like cue cards from rehab, just short little chapters, maybe a page or two long. And then I just collected them over time. And so that's what the book is. And that's why it reads the way it does. They're all in these little short snippets of memory and time because I was really writing it to figure myself out so that I could be healthy, you know? And that was the goal. And I was just, the stars aligned and the way I had uh, gone through university, I uh, won all these major awards and that caught media attention. And Simon and Schuster came calling and they asked if I had anything written about my life. And I gave them my my AA program, basically. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, this is an amazing book. Do you want to publish it? And I'm like, ah. It was really for me, uh, but yeah, sure, let's see what we can do. And then they helped me build out the meta-narrative of my life and uh, make it into more of something that's readable for the audience. So yeah, that's, that's what it is. I know journaling is such a, you know, there are these Eastern beliefs that are finally making their way to us that have actually been around forever, but people here think meditation and mindfulness is this new hip thing. And, but anyways, journaling is another big one. If someone listening does have some something they need to work through, was the process very complex in what you were doing or was it quite simple? How would, how would someone apply that into their life today? That's a great question, man. You're a good interviewer. No one's ever asked <laughs> me that before. Thank you. So my avenue into a lot of these memories was through like songs or I'd be watching a movie with Lucy, my wife, and something would happen in a certain way that reminded me of something that happened to me and it would just click. And I'm like, Oh my God, I got to go write this down. So I'd pick up a piece of paper and I'd write it down. And in that there's a catharsis because I can engage with that memory through that piece of art and I could like put it on paper and there's a release there. It's not a part of me. It's still traumatic, but it's out there and it's now something that I can see and make sense of instead of just a, a recurring memory that wandered through my head. I guess they would call that mindfulness because you have to concentrate and think and think through those situations. And I just did that over and over again when I heard a song from the 90s that I liked. It reminded me of that time. And I remember, oh, yeah, that's when I like broke Karen's heart and I ran away. And I wrote that story down and I just continued to do that over and over and over until I could make sense of my life. And like, basically, I needed to do that to forgive myself and the people in my life. And uh, so I continue to journal. I haven't stopped. Since, you know, the book is written. I continue, I continue to go back and try to make sense of, of stuff that way. And uh, yeah, that's how I've engaged and healed, actually. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm sure there's people out there listening that regardless of the level of, of adversity or challenge they may be dealing with that may be able to help. And I, it, what you said about 
put taking that thought and putting it into something again, a, something briefly that I learned in a paper I was reading that the best or a reason that it can be so successful is that you can materialize something that doesn't really, because our thoughts don't, we feel like That's they're right. you know invisible and they don't really exist and you totally materialized it and then you can take it and do something with it, which you obviously did and you acted on it. So Yeah, I published it and you you can also take those memories and burn them and, and free yourself. You can just chuck it on fire and say it has no power over me or you can publish them and then they don't the world knows about them and they don't have that same power over you. You know, like sure I did a lot of horrible things. It's out there now. I'm admitting what I did and I'm trying to make amends for it too. Trying to create fellowship with other people that feel that they're unforgivable or that they can't move past their traumas or what they've done in their life. I'm saying this is an example of someone who was the unforgiven and now through sharing our stories, we get stronger and create fellowship and a community and we heal together. You know, It's amazing how to me, it's, it's like, it's a complex problem but when you look at it with a very rational lens it's actually quite simple you take a young boy or girl and you take the love away and and home and then people later once you're grown up for some reason people are unable to you know because you can't see that and i think that's where your book is so valuable that again to go off what we just talked about you've made tangible you've materialized this this issue that does exist and, and done such an incredible job, job of it. So, um, yeah, yeah, more of a pat on your back again, not that you need it, but. Oh, thank you. I, I think if you're trying to make a warrior or something like, uh, like, a something built for war, that's what you would do. Again, I, I related to the example of Spartan. I remember being in jail, being so disassociated that I could do like 200 pushups a day on a broken wrist. I can't do that now, but that's because I was trained to be that way from the trials of my life. And, you know, because I had no sense of safety, I didn't even work to reserve safety in my body, even if it meant putting myself through extreme pain. I just could do that, you know, and uh, it made me very dangerous actually for a while, but, you know, I'm normal now and things are good. I have to ask in rehab because there were other times where you were in rehab and things didn't go as well. No, <laughs> that, that, that time through what kept you on the path? Well, the first time I thought I knew everything. So I got there and I listened to other people. And I'm like, ah, they're not as bad as me. They didn't go through the same stuff. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. And so I just kind of stayed sober for like the first day and repeated that 90 days and I didn't do my fourth steps I didn't do my a I didn't relinquish myself to my higher power all that stuff I just thought oh these people are cracker jacks and I know better and ultimately though I really I relapsed right and so when I was on the streets the last time and I was like I almost died like I was telling you I realized that I didn't know anything I realized that I'm like okay here I am with my leg all messed up again. You know, I I'm, can't control my body and I'm going to die. I'm like 130 pounds. Maybe I should listen to these people. Maybe they have something to, to show me. And that opened within me, like the ability to learn, you know, like I didn't have that like pride, that block where I thought I knew stuff and I knew that they had 
the answers to what I needed to do to survive. And I listened to them. I did everything they told me to do. And I did it as much as I could because I was fighting for my life. It was almost like I was, uh, felt like I was swimming to shore after a shipwreck. And I just fought with all my heart, with every stroke. And uh, I just fought and fought. And here I am now, you know. And so that's how I turned it around. Incredible. And at what part, at what time in that journey did your grandmother pass away? Well, my grandmother passed away when I was like halfway through rehab the second time. And um, I went to go see her at William Osler uh, in Brampton. She had leukemia. And um, we just, when I saw her, she was really frail and, you know, she just told me that she knew uh, I was I wasn't who I was who I was being, you know, that I was actually smart and she was upset. She wasn't angry at me because of all the stuff I'd done. She was upset that I was wasting the gifts that I had been given. She knew I was smart, right? And so she made me promise her that I would finish go to university and get my education and to help the world instead of hurting it and I made her a promise. You know, I don't, it wasn't really like a promise. It was more like something I said to make her feel better. You know, like whatever, grandma, yeah, I'll do whatever you say, just get better. And then like we hugged and uh, two weeks later she died. And that promise has like lived within me. It gave me purpose, really. Gave me purpose and education and uh, the fuel that I needed to keep going. Uh, and I still hold on to that promise. And I, you know, I always remember when I'm going to go off the rails or I'm stressed out or I want to use, I remember my grandmother and that promise and it keeps me going. So I'm curious where, was it a kind of a snowball effect when you first, when you started to teach yourself to read in, in prison, right? Is that like, where did that energy, was that energy, where did it come from? Like I, I find that incredible, and it seems like if from the outside looking in, it was a snowball effect of teaching yourself to read, getting a degree, now becoming one of the most decorated academics in the country. Like, wh- but early on, that that motivation, that work ethic to to force yourself to read, where did that fuel come from? Even consistently to to come back and keep teaching yourself, and we know teaching yourself is a lot more. It takes a lot more work ethic than someone t- explaining everything to you. I found that. A, something I really wanted to dive into in the book because there's, it's so easy to, ah, it's okay. I learned enough. Uh, you know, I did enough yesterday and you were teaching yourself to read. I just find that outstanding where it, and maybe you already answered that in, in, you know, reflecting back on your grandmother, but how do you keep that going? No, it, it started quite a bit earlier. This is like when I was still cycling into the justice system, I just wanted better. I just wanted better for myself. And I thought that reading, learning, that could do it for me. You know, I I equated that somehow because I saw a guy at the end of the range and he was doing his time and he didn't ever have any problems and stuff. And I wanted that. I wanted what he had, you know. And I think that was probably one of the most bravest things I ever did in my life was that, you know, it was like finding the courage to, give it a try. You know, that was so ingrained in me from a kid that I just wasn't smart or didn't have it. And so 
I thought I'd just try because what else did I have to lose? And then when I got started getting into it, I just, I kind of looked at it like, it's weird. The pain in my leg taught me a lot about pushing through things. And so when it was difficult, I always would say, well, it's not as hard as learning to walk again after, you know, crushing your ankle. And so just suck it up and push on put in a little to to get up early do this and i just kept doing that over and over building good habits and one builds on the other it's like a stalactite in a cave and that little calcium drip just keeps dripping and dripping as long as that dripping is going something good is happening and i just kept doing that and i can't i keep doing that and stuff keeps happening so <laughs> but it all started way back when i first started to try and teach myself to read yeah doing my ged in jail <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool it's almost the you know what is it chop wood carry water kind of approach and just keep going and slowly slowly piece it together and again i find i don't know if there's anyone else at least outwardly that that people would know that has done that i find do you yeah. know anyone else that has done that and then gone on to do what you've done <laughs> no no and it, i don't know i don't know uh, people tell me it's i don't know i, I have no idea what what <laughs> happened i just tried to keep that drip going you know and that's yeah. all i did that's all i did really now you said and also in the book that the real secret to your success was a, an individual named lucy yeah yeah so she how is. can we unpack that <laughs> So Lucy is a, a girl that I knew when I was 10 uh, and when I was a kid. And like she was hung out with all the popular kids. She had this red hair and I was a geek. I was a nerd. And I went to go talk to her on a hill at my, my middle school. And she was nice. She was nice to me. And the other popular girls weren't. And I always remembered that, right? And then like we went our separate ways. We grew up. and um, But she was my brother's friend. And uh, the night I fell off the building and hurt my leg, she was there. And I, I remembered her very clearly, but she didn't have a clue of who I was, you know. And uh, I fell and then I went through my tribulation. She did her thing. And then my grandmother was dying while I was in rehab many years later. And uh, she sent me this Facebook message uh, just consoling me because she heard from my brother, Jerry. She was his friend. Uh, that I was trying to get my life together and they didn't want me to relapse. And she was just kind to me, you know, she was a kind person. And uh, we started talking then and I started sending her love poetry and I was incarcerated. So you can guess what I was after, you know, uh, like any guy who's in jail. <laughs> so, but from that came really honest feelings and she could see that I needed love. And she just, she took a chance on me, on me, an old rounder with addiction issues and yeah it was like a mustard seed that grew i don't know how to explain it just observing it comes back to this the little bits of love that you got were such pivotal moments in your life yeah yeah and that's that's what made the difference ultimately i think she she her love kind of invigorated within my spirit something it had craved since i was four you know, I just wanted someone, I just want love like us all, right? And right. she gave that to me and I just grew like a desert cactus or something, you know, and I just kept growing and she uh, cultivated me and taught me how to read, uh, not, not read, how to drive, how to like 
access all kinds of like uh, OSAP, so the student loan here in Ontario. She pushed me to get my education and help me like with grammar and all that stuff. She edited all the work that I put out and she just kept doing that and like supporting me and helping me. And so my success really is her love, you know, manifested into whatever it is today. And like without her, I am nothing. I know that, you know. And now today, PhD candidate in the history program at York University, and then also teaching there as an assistant professor. Do you bring into your teachings and lessons today a lot of your past? And has that served? Uh, if you had, if you have, how has that kind of affected your students? Yeah, I do bring it in. I taught my memoir last class because it really highlights like children's aid, 60 scoop, uh, impacts of intergenerational trauma, indigenous homelessness, uh, adverse childhood experiences. All these things are tied in with indigenous history is what I teach. And so I use that as a vehicle in to, uh, you know, discussions about Canadian and indigenous history policy all the ways that indigenous people were dispossessed. And that really gives students a good handle on it because a lot of, uh, especially in the university level, there's no personal relationship with a lot of these sociological or historical events. They're just a chronology that students have to remember. And then, you know, they're on to the next subject, but here I am a face and I can break down the history and its impacts and show it in what I'm teaching, they relate to it. And then they start to do that with their own life. They're like, oh yeah, I come from Somalia and something similar happened here when the Italians tried to, you know, take over our country or I'm from Sri Lanka and I remember British colonialism and I can see the impacts of intergenerational trauma in my Tamil family and so on. And so it gives a real connection and illumination of history that I think gives me, um, an advantage over other teachers who just know the books and where I have like concrete examples that they can anchor onto and understand. And from the teachers, I guess, reviews that they have to do at the end of the class, uh, they think I'm pretty good. So I'm going to keep doing this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sensing that as well. Like I can tell where they're, where they're coming from. Uh, in, in your book, you talked about during your early days at York University and then also working in the homeless shelter that you were able to figure out who you were and, yeah. and not to get too philosophical, uh, but who you were also as a Mete Cree person. If I said, what have you figured out? What would you say? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, who am I? I'm a survivor, I guess, of of you know colonial history here in canada i'm a, i'm a husband you know i'm a cat owner uh i'm a guy who likes starbucks i'm just a regular dude you know and like i have a history and it it gives my experiences are like my super power and i'm not afraid to talk about them and it gives me like an insight into so many different policies and histories and so I, I guess they would call that a knowledge keeper in my language, that those experiences, those hardships were my elders on the streets, you know, addictions, homelessness, hunger, not having a home. I use all that information now to inform scholarship and policy to help people. 
And yeah, I guess that's what they would call me. I'm a knowledge keeper, you know, and that's not something I take on lightly. And I'm also a storyteller. That's the way I transmit my knowledge. So that's what I learned. Your book does such a great job of explaining the issue that exists in your people and other people in similar situations. And the National Study of Indigenous Youth Homelessness in Canada, uh, diving into basically the overrepresented group in homelessness, which is uh, Indigenous homeless youth. Basically, the journal entry was proving what we basically already knew. I would say that there's issue and there needs more attention on on these people, especially youth and females. I want to ask the question as if I was a decision maker, how would you explain to me what changes need to be made to rectify this issue for people that may not be as courageous as you? How can we change this before it gets to that point? Well, if you look at what child services has done historically is they take the child out of the family grouping. Why are we punishing the children? Why don't we work towards keeping family units together and take out the problem adult and rehabilitate the problem adult and then return them back into the the family unit? The most important thing is to keep the families together. I know that from experience. I see what it did to me and my brothers and all the different people that I've talked to over the years. And now they're starting to build programs like Native Child here in Toronto. They're starting to do that. So pouring resources into housing for mothers, you know, sending males away to anger management camp or to jail if need be, uh, where they can get the rehabilitation that they need. And then reinserting them if they can go back to the, the family unit. But the, more, the main message is to keep that family unit together because by the terms of the definition of Indigenous homelessness, when we break those connections, those kinship connections, then someone becomes truly homeless. And it's only a matter of time before they become houseless in adulthood. So we should always try to keep those houses together. And uh, there are agencies that are doing that kind of work already. And that's what I would really, really strongly advocate for, for policymakers to think about. It really makes clear the difference between house and home. Yes. And I, it's powerful when you say it. I wanted to kind of conclude on that is what would you say is the definition of a home and maybe a healthy home? Love. That's it. That's it. That's all home really is. It's just love. And that's what your parents give you. And no matter what, even if you don't have a house and you're on the run with your dad, as long as they love you, you are home. And that's what rehomed me was the love of Lucy, right? And that's how I know that because I didn't have it and then I found it. And so... I always try to bring that into discussions and some people might say I'm naive, but it's really, that's the truth of it. It's love. I'm speechless. I was already blown away by the book and I, I figured I would learn more and more. And yeah, this has been absolutely outstanding. I can't thank you enough. Well, well, thank you very much, Ben. It's been a wonderful experience. You're an awesome interviewer and feel really at ease. You're a cool guy. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. Again, if you want to order Jesse's book, the link is in the description of this episode. And if you have constructive feedback, potential guests, someone you'd like to hear from, or a topic you want discussed, 
My email is always in the description of these episodes as well, so shoot me an email. Would love to have a conversation. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.